Oh, 30 years. No, not 30 years. 1995. Much more like uh, 25 years, 24, 25 years. Let me check with Eamon Phoenix, Dr. Eamon Phoenix. Eamon, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Eamon, I presume this is a, is this, is this a, a 25-year revelation that we're looking at now. Yes, well, we're moving, Frank. The big thing recently has been a move from the 30-year rule, which was a fairly traditional thing, to a 20-year rule over the last four years. So we're moving rapidly. So we're seeing files earlier and earlier now. And we're looking at, really, the files relating to the, the ceasefires of 1994 and, of course, political talk, decommissioning, everything that dominated our minds, you know, um, when we were younger. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like a long time ago... You know, 1994, 1995, I have such clear memories, such fond memories, actually. You don't have to have political memories or memories of the obvious atrocities that spring to mind. You know, my memory of 1994 is down winning their second All-Ireland in the 1990s. 1995, Tyrone missing out when Peter Canavan was robbed of an equalising score against Dublin. That seems like no time ago. Well, indeed. And the thing was, of course, there was a transformation in 1994-95. I mean, after 25 years of unremitting violence, terrible atrocities, biggest population movement in Belfast and Western Europe since the Second World War, as people were intimidated out of their homes and so on. And suddenly you had the ceasefire, the IRA one in August 94, the Loyalist one following, opening up possibilities. The word is summed up by Patrick Mayhew, actually, who was the Secretary of State at the time, and in a private letter at Christmas 94, sort of three months into the ceasefires, he writes to a friend in Australia, the atmosphere is transformed and he expresses cautious optimism that despite all the problems about the permanency of the IRA ceasefire that the major government are raising and uh, many people, including unionists, worried about decommissioning happening, which it isn't, um, nonetheless, he's hopeful that this peace might actually endure, that it might last. When we look back, we have to accept that that era, that particular critical set of moves that were happening, it does it, it, it does jump out as being incredibly relevant to today, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, we what we ha- what we wrought in those days, what we all sort of hoped for. When you look back to the Clinton visit to Belfast at Christmas ninety, uh, you know, ninety five, a year into the ceasefires, and the hope that you know, uh, you know, we never had it so good, really, from the late sixties. We've never had it so good, and uh, of course, uh, what we had until two years ago, a functioning assembly dealing with local matters, health, education, the rest, north south bodies, you know. Uh, fair employment has been there now um, uh, a generation and you know it was a marvellous background to move forward and we lost it all just over two years ago Um, and now we're facing Brexit a tremendous challenge no matter what your views are on it economically um, socially culturally and uh, suddenly and of course politically and there's no assembly there and I mean in many ways you know when people talk about the dangers of a hard Brexit they're probably thinking initially of the the economic challenges of that and so on and the challenge to people moving across the border to work which has been free since the early 1990s Um, but they're also worried about a recrudescence of that violence that was banished in the period I'm looking at in these papers this morning. I think we should also keep in mind that even though we talk about the IRA ceasefire of 1994, it, it was broken in, in I think it was February of 96 with the London Docklands bomb, wasn't it? 
It was broken in February 96 with Canary Wharf. Two people died and, of course, it wasn't resumed then until 1997. It has less impact in Northern Ireland because the, the, the violence, which was limited, but, I mean, obviously, uh, people lost their lives horrifically. Um, that violence was confined to Great Britain um, and there was no real, well, there were a few killings uh, by, uh, you know, groups using various banners like direct action against drugs which were linked to uh, Republican paramilitaries. But in general, the violence here did end in 1994. You had the, the shocking atrocity later on of the Oma bomb by dissidents in which over 30 people died. But in general, people were becoming used. Taxi drivers could move from area to area. Buses, you know, were freely moving across the city. There was a spring in people's steps and all that. And of course, against that background, the first meetings take place in December 94, January 95, between the British government represented by the officials of the NIO and a Sinn Féin delegation led by Martin McGuinness on the one hand, and then the loyalist parties led by people like the late David Irvine on the other. The McGuinness meeting is very interesting, the first meeting, because the senior British official, Quinton Thomas, the head of the NIO, who knew all about the back channel, secret contacts with the IRA over the previous kind of um, 30 years, um, he's challenged by Martin McGuinness right away, who's Fred? And he pretends not to know, and then he acknowledges he knows Fred, but he doesn't know how he is. And McGuinness, of course, is referring to a British intelligence agent called Robert McLaren, a Scot who arrived in Derry, Londonderry, in 1992, just two years before, to make contact with McGuinness, disguised as a businessman, but producing a letter from the Secretary of State at that time, Peter Brook. And that, that was a continuation of that back channel, which had been there in Margaret Thatcher's day as well. Um, and uh, that message, of course, which was often quoted, allegedly from Martin McGuinness, saying the war is over, but we need Britain to help us to end it. McGuinness denied he ever said it. But that sort of is an issue in these talks. And then the British government, they hype up the historical nature. Thomas tells the Sinn Féin delegates that uh, Christmas meeting of 1994, this is a moment of history. You know, it said that, you know, history hangs like a chain around Ireland's necks. We have the, the hungry hand of history really at our backs. And he's really uh, uh, sort of uh, anticipating Tony Blair's hand of history later on. There is a sense that if both sides can crack this, and that the pike is put in the thatcher, we might say in modern parlance, the gun is permanently decommissioned, then this island, these islands, uh, which we share, as the British official tells Martin McGuinness, you know, may have a very, very different future. And, of course, Sinn Féin, of course, very quickly put out their stall. They want um, an all-Ireland state with sovereignty. They blame Britain for interfering over 800 years. They say that um, Britain is raising this decommissioning issue to um, get you to uh, put Sinn Féin on a hook. <laughs> Sinn Féin has nothing to do with the IRA. Martin McGuinness tells the British, of course, they say we believe you have great influence. And you can see right away in those early months of 1995, as these talks drag on, that decommission is going to become a very difficult uh, issue in the talks. On the loyalist side, um, you have the UDP, uh, also Democratic Party, linked to the UDA. Uh, you have the PUP, who are headed by David Irvine, 
progressive unionist linked to the UDF. And you can see Irvine emerging, even in the estimation of the NAO, as a, a substantial figure, you know, an impressive figure. For example, when it comes to economics, and, and they have their issues about decommissioning, they will not decommission the UDA or the UDF, they say, until they're sure that the IRA is on a permanent ceasefire. Um, on the other hand, of course, they say they want to take all arms out of society, something Sinn Féin says as well. But David Irvine, for example, when it comes to economics, um, rejects the idea of a kind of a, an electricity interconnected with Scotland. No, he says, you know, Scotland has a self-contained economy. We need an interconnector with the South because we can sell electricity and create jobs. And you can see his forward thinking there, even though, as he admits, uh, the loyalists are big players in this. And you can see by the British, they don't waste their rhetoric on the loyalists. All of this historic rhetoric, sense of history, is for Sinn Féin to kind of, you know, sucker them in. And David Irvine is very uh, worried that he has been, if you like, seduced by the British. With regards to the Republic's government, there was some suggestion that they were too quick to embrace the likes of Jerry Adams. So is, is that fair to say from these documents? There was a, a, a there was criticism of them for that. Absolutely. Well, you have to realise that Albert Reynolds, who had come to power after Hawkey's fall in 1992, had played a key role, not just in talking to the IRA, but in dealing with loyalists through the Reverend Roy McGee and his uh, agent, Dr. Martin Manser, who had advised a succession of Tishi, Irish Prime Minister of the Peace Is heavily involved in going to Belfast, to the Newton Ars Road, to the Shankill Road. So Reynolds had played this key role. And when all the ducks are in line, in August 94 with the IRA ceasefire uh, he's very quick to embrace it he invites John Hume and Jerry Adams to Dublin where you have the famous three-handed hand clasp at government buildings now that irks the NIO because John Major is already questioning the permanency of the IRA ceasefire um, because John Major is in a very difficult position um, he's faced with a 20 or 30 euro sceptics a bit like today um, who don't like his pro-Europe policies he's relying and James Moyno and the Unionists, his rigor room is very little. And so what happens is Albert Reynolds embraces the ceasefire and a senior NIO official writes um, a month later that they were too quick to do this, you know. They had done it with indecent haste, uh, accepting the IRS, uh, at the, uh, you know, statement at face value, and therefore they had unnerved the Unionist population. And that becomes a narrative. In Anglo-Irish negotiations, remember, the Anglo-Irish agreement is still effective. You still have the Anglo-Irish conferences regularly. Um, Dick Spring, the Irish Foreign Minister, is raising the issue, saying that the British response to the ceasefires is minimalist. They're not taking down the heavy military installations on the border, the Rosemont Tower overlooking the bog side. They are not um, decoupling military accompaniment from the police. Um, Eventually, you find at security briefings for the NIO, the military, the RUC, they're beginning to talk about the response. They're beginning to send the odd regiment home to the English base. They're beginning to remove um, military accompaniment for routine police patrols. In fact, the deputy head, chief constable, Blair Wallace, actually says in February 95, we want to get back to unarmed policing, as recommended by Hunt. Policing impartial, acceptable to all communities. And finally, a battalion is sent back in a gesture to Sinn Féin of the IRA who have been complaining bitterly about the lack of a response. But Major is very careful about this. He's frightened of unsettling his unionist allies. 
and uh, he very reluctantly accepts it. So you can see that, you know, this is slowing down the British response. It's antagonising the Republicans. James Molyneux, who's in, uh, the leader of the Ulster Unions for the big party then, is very concerned about the ceasefires generally and the threat to the Union if there's any secret deals being done. And the Irish government, of course, are trying to deliver something to Sinn Féin to make peace permanent and releasing prisoners at their end. And America's involved, and that's really important because one of the big files, Frank, and your listeners will be very interested in this, concerns that disappeared. This was an issue that had never been mentioned before, really, September 1994. It was only then that Seamus McKendry, who was the son-in-law of Jean McConville, who had been abducted, um, interrogated, murdered, and then disappeared by the IRA, that these cases came to the surface. There's a huge file on this because Seamus McKendry and his group, Families of the Disappeared, began to write to John Major, began to write to Albert Reynolds, seeking meetings. And eventually they have a meeting at Stormont with an NIO minister and they talk about the loss of their loved ones. Two young men, for example, uh, Brian McKinney and John McClory, both in their 20s, who had been disappeared in 1978. Their bodies never found. Rumours that the bodies are in the Belfast Mountains. Nobody knew where. The police had no information in the files. That's something we noticed. And these young men apparently had been involved in petty crime. They were uh, arrested by the IRA. They were interrogated. One of them tried to escape, according to the file, was shot dead. The other um, uh, detainee witnessed this, and then he was he was murdered, and the bodies were disposed of. Jean McConville leaving, of course, a large family, one of them mentally handicapped, who were begging food for months before they were discovered. Her body finally discovered at a beach in County Loud. This is a burning issue, and Bill Clinton raises this with a Jerry Adams in Washington, heartening the families. The British government become involved, and of course they're also concerned, and still are, about the body of uh, Captain Robert Nyrak, an undercover soldier who was believed to have been um, uh, kidnapped and murdered by the IRA in 1978 and disappeared. So that issue that has haunted the peace process, and we're all aware of it, emerges for the first time. And you have a kind of a stripling British government saying, we know very little about this. The IUC know very little about this. And the families are campaigning, and eventually, of course, a body is set up which begins to finally find, based on intelligence and information, most of the bodies, not all, of the disappeared. It's incredible the amount of reading that's involved in files like this. It's just a historian's dream going going through it. And I think for anyone who, who lived it, it is immensely, immensely interesting. Just one, one final point, Eamon. There was a man on a journey and he eventually arrived at a situation that surprised a lot of us. Where, where was he in all of this? Peter Robinson. Uh, yes, indeed. Well, Peter Robinson is there. He's deputy leader of the DUP. Again, Paisley, of course, is fulminating against any British response to the ceasefires and so on. But Peter Robinson is very concerned about tourism. Um, in the background, in the aftermath of the ceasefires, the tourist bodies north and south um, are beginning to cooperate in sailing Ireland as a, a single destination for the tourists. And this involves um, pressure to, if you like, um, reduce the size and appearance of military installations on the border because the tourist board are saying look when people come many of them from the republic into the north oh, the first thing they, they see are these installations heavily metal forbidding structures uh, with troops 
and they think they're entering a war zone. And there's a lot of talking going on about how to market Ireland as a single destination. But Peter Robinson intervenes in the summer of 1995. He's unhappy with a new logo that the Northern Ireland Tourist Board has adopted, which is, uh, you may remember it, right? It's the uh, shamrock with the little red hand in the middle. And he sees this as a gesture towards future Irish unity. He complains that Northern Ireland is being marginalised in reports being issued by the Irish Tourist Board. And, uh, of course, Lord Rathcavan, a former Unionist Cabinet Minister, Hugh O'Neill, says, no, no, this is pragmatic. We're trying to create jobs and tourism. He writes to Peter Robinson. But he also says, in the Far East, the British Tourist Board are working with Board Falcher in the South to sell the British Isles as a destination for tourists. We have to be pragmatic. And, of course, Europe is there all the time. John Major was talking very early on about accessing European funding um, for reconciliation work. That still continues down to the present day as peace for people in East, West, Belfast, across the region are accessing funds for cross-community contact schemes, even using history as a way of examining our past. I'm involved in a lot of this myself from time to time. And the upshot of all of this is, of course, Major is also considering accessing uh, European funds to, if you like, um, uh, dress up the border posts, to give them a lick of paint, to make them less awesome, to attract the tourists. So Europe and European funding to underpin the process um, is in its infancy, but the British and Irish governments see that as vital at that time. It's a very relevant conversation when you think uh, Brexit is coming down the line and people have so many different opinions on what a border might or might not look like uh, in maybe months from now. Uh, where have those 25 years gone? Eamon, great speaking to you. It's amazing how you know all the detail, but uh, it's always a joy to listen to you. Thanks for coming nice on. Thank you. Nice Thank to you. talk to you, Frank. Thank you very much. That is the incredibly eloquent Dr. Eamon Phoenix. Uh, this is the U105 phone-in. How's the form with you this morning? Frank Mitchell here through until the middle of the day. Uh, we are heading towards a bank holiday weekend. Does that mean anything to you at this particular time in August? Or is Monday just another working day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.